Good afternoon. Welcome to this place of peace. Welcome to this house of love. Welcome to All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church of Shreveport, where every day we try to make the world a better place. We are glad you're here. And I especially want to welcome all of our guests. I could be wrong, but I am told that this is the first interfaith, multiracial, social justice and anti-racist support meeting in Shreveport since the days of David Duke. And if that is true, it's a pity. But I want you to know that we have come together tonight for a good cause. We have come together to help support boys who have been railroaded, who have been selectively prosecuted, who have had bail set too high. And this is not right. And we were showing the movie of this the other day, and somebody said, you know, Lynn, this kind of thing happens every day in the state of Louisiana. And I said, that is a bitter shame. And we're going to have to do something about that. And you will find out on the... <clears throat> table as you leave a resolution that this congregation passed last Sunday afternoon, which voiced our dismay at the disgraceful situation in Gina and at the disgraceful situation in the judicial process here. And you also note that we resolved to do some things. It didn't just say we are against the bad stuff. It said we are going to do some things about it. Among those things is to work with the Northern and Louisiana Interfaith Group, which is composed of 16 congregations, and it includes Hispanics, Jews, the Imam, it includes African Americans, it includes practically every denomination in this town. And we are so glad to be associated, and Northern and Central Louisiana Interfaith is co-hosting this with all souls. So welcome again, and we hope that you will leave this place with your spirits enriched, with more love in your heart. Reverend Jackie Dozier is going to light the chalice. And I want to explain to you all just a little bit about our chalice. Let me just do that. The chalice became a symbol for the Unitarian Universalists during the Second World War when two of our ministers were in Europe and they set up a network to rescue Jews who were being hauled off to concentration camps. And the symbol of the chalice was put in windows, and it was put on stationery. And the Nazis didn't understand what that symbol was. And therefore, it provided a safe haven. So you can just put it in here, and then you light it up there. So when you see the chalice, or when you see somebody wearing a chalice, that's what that means. Thank you. 
So we light this chalice in honor of hope and peace and inclusiveness for everyone, everywhere. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Shall we pray? Eternal and all-wise God, how excellent is your name, and how we gladly gather here tonight in this place, in this sacred place, in this sacred space, to give you homage and to call on your holy and righteous name. Lord, indeed, you are a God of justice and a God of mercy. We gather in the name of justice and mercy. We gather tonight, O oh God, to act as change agents, to not merely be onlookers, but be those individuals who are called, who answer the call, uh, to be used of you to make a difference in the world in which we live. We thank you, O oh God, for those who have gathered with this same spirit. And tonight we challenge ourselves and we commit ourselves to the cause of justice, humanity, freedom, and equality everywhere. This we pray in the strong and matchless name of the one who loves us all. Amen. Amen. While you're still standing. If you can, if you need to sit down, please feel free to do so. And Father, I come now behind my brother, Pastor Joe Bynes, to pray for peace and pray for wisdom and knowledge and understanding for our magistrates for our politicians and those who you have placed in positions of power, positions of rulership. Father, we pray for them now that you would endue them with wisdom and knowledge and understanding. Give them hearts of compassion. Help them to do justice and mercy in all of their dealings with your people. And we pray now, O oh God, that your spirit of peace and equality will reign over us, each and every one of us in this house and throughout the state of Louisiana, our nation, and the world. And we give you thanks and we bless your holy name. Amen. Please, you may sit down. You all don't know what an honor was extended to you. And I realize that it wasn't really to you. It was to the great creator. But, um, you know, these folks aren't used to standing up for prayer. And uh, you all did really well. Thank you. I think maybe it's not a bad thing to introduce. As I say, amen to the words of these wise pastors, spirit of life. Give us the strength and the courage and the smiles and the big hearts that are necessary to go forth and do the work of social justice, to eradicate racism, to get rid of all forms of exclusion. Open our hearts so that we recognize when we are not being fair. Open our eyes so that we see when we may be doing things out of habit that can be interpreted as racial discrimination. Give us open hearts and open wise minds so that we may really, truly become the gracious, forgiving, loving kinds of people that we truly want to be. 
In the name of all that is holy and sacred. Amen. The offering this evening is going to be given to the Southern Poverty Law Center. The Southern Poverty Law Center, as some of you know, is paying for the defense of some of the boys in Gina. And so I wanted you to know that that's what is going to happen with the offering this evening. So please join us in being generous to this wonderful organization that we honor tonight. We will now have a special reading by Pastor Jackie Dozier. Good evening, everyone. Um, Giving me pleasure to read this letter from the Reverend William Sinkford, president of the Unitarian Universalist Association of uh, Boston, Massachusetts. And when the church here and Interfaith decided to make a stand or have our voices heard concerning the injustice that we saw in the news that's being perpetrated in Jenna, Louisiana, um, the Reverend Oglesby, Oglesby decided to try to engage all the Universalist churches because they have a known history for helping folks in times of um, such as this, when there's injustice or any kind of social injustice. And so the Reverend William Sinkford asked us to write him a letter and invite him. He was courteous enough not to want to just impose on Louisiana, but needed a formal invitation. And so we drafted one, sent it in, and I have the pleasure today of reading to you his response. And before I do that, I do want to acknowledge our senator in the House, Senator Lydia Jackson, um, uh, Councilperson Joe Shine, and if there's any others in the House, thank you for coming. We appreciate your support. Did I miss any other politicians? Anybody? Somebody's pointing me that direction. Matthew, okay. January, you still won, though. Thank you for being here. Appreciate your support. Yeah. Thank you for not letting us overlook him. The letter says, To Northern and Central Louisiana Interfaith Northwest Cluster from... Reverend William Sinkford, President, Unitarian Universalist Association. First of all, thank you so much for your work for justice in the trial of the six young men in Jenna, Louisiana. It is good to know that a strong and vibrant interfaith coalition is engaged in this work. Second, thanks for inviting the Unitarian Universalist Association to partner with you in your work. We have been delighted to do so. I have written a letter to the Governor, Cabaline Babineau Blanco, asking her to commute the sentence of Michael Bell or to pardon him. The Unitarian Universalist Association's national staff has also sent out action alerts about this matter to our anti-racism activists and congregations, to interfaith coalitions in which we are in partnership and engaged our periodical staff in engaging our people with this story. I wish that I could be with you on September the 20th in Jenna. However, a long-standing complex meeting involving many people from all over the country hangs in the balance. In my absence, I am sending a senior staff member, the Reverend Meg Riley, 
director of our advocacy and witness programs. Meg has worked to support many communities of color in the Gulf Coast area over the past two years working for justice in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. Finally, thank you for recognizing the Unitarian Universalist Association's long struggle towards racial justice. We know full well that racism in the criminal justice system does not exist only in this case or in Louisiana. We will continue to work with partners such as yourselves for the decades ahead, believing in our souls, those words that Dr. King lifted up as a talisman, that the moral arc of the universe is long, and it does indeed bend toward justice. My prayers and the prayers of Unitarian Universalists all over the nation join with you in your struggle now. In faith, William Singford, President, Unitarian Universalist Association of Congregations, 25 Beacon Street, Boston, Massachusetts. Well, Jackie wrote the letter to him, so I thought that Jackie should read it. I would like to introduce now a noted member of our congregation. Henry Walker has been a civil rights attorney for over 40 years. I've never known him to take injustice sitting down. And he stays on top of things. He gives more strength than most of us have in a month of Sundays to developing fairness in the justice system and particularly to the downtrodden. Henry, it's an honor to have you with us. Following a beautiful soloist and three preachers is a tough gig, <laughs> but I'll do my best. One of the things that I ought to say right off the bat, uh, the, the famous phrase about this case talks about the genus six. Actually, there are seven. There were six young men, and the seventh was a juvenile, is a juvenile. Um, I got involved in this case because I got a call from the head of the Southern Poverty Law Center with whom we worked over the years. For those of you that don't know, this is the most effective civil rights organization in the country, maybe in the world, because they don't just talk and demonstrate and, and wave placards. They go get them. They go after the Ku Klux Klan. They go after the Aryan nations. They go after the Christian identity, all of those skinhead groups that blew up the Oklahoma Federal Building, for instance. And they have wiped out the Ku Klux Klan in Alabama. They own every piece of property they have. And the attempts on their life are going to continue. Uh, Morris Dees was the head of it, and I'll never forget when his children used to have to go to school under armed guards. And I was thinking, what kind of a country do we live in? But Richard Cohen has taken over the organization. He called me and said, we need to do something about Gina. And I said, you know, we heard about this last fall, we being, I'm a past president of the State Criminal Defense Bar. That's what I always thought it was, was a criminal defense lawyer. Apparently I'm do some civil rights work on the side. And uh, 
we hadn't seen this, we had heard about it, but the idea that there was selective prosecution, that there were race-based sentences, that there were bad public defenders, that the whole system was a nightmare of injustice was like, this is news? We've known this forever. Is there anybody that doubts that you think that driving while black is some urban myth? This goes on every day. But it particularly goes on, and it's most horrifying, in small towns in Louisiana. Gina is just one of many, many, many. And so I said, what did we need to do? It seems to me we should hire the very best lawyers we could find. He said, who's the best lawyer, best criminal defense lawyer in the state? I said, Jim Boren in Baton Rouge. So Jim got involved, and then uh, my son, actually, Clay Walker, who is widely recognized as one of the foremost authorities on juvenile defense in the state, was asked to participate on behalf of the juvenile. It seems to me that what we ought to be talking about is more than just the selective prosecution or the high bails or the arrogance with which these folks down there have displayed such blatant bigotry. We rarely, rarely see it so openly displayed. And that's what finally got all of our attention, was that, my Lord, this is everything that's wrong with the system is right here in this case. Now, most of you know the basic facts because you have read it on the new, in the news or seen it on television. Some may have seen the BBC movie or whatever. I have spoken just today with Jim Boren to pick up a few details, and I thought I'd spend a minute just to go over them for you because there may be some things you don't know. We all know about the big oak tree outside the high school where the white kids had historically gathered. What you may not know is that the black kids were not allowed under that tree, that they had to sit on a bench on a breezeway that was only half covered. And the principal drew a black line down the sidewalk of that breezeway. Black kids sit on that side of that black line. And if you cross it, you're going to get suspended from school for three days. And if you cross it the second time, 15 days. So at some point, one of the young black men, a couple of them, asked whether they could use the uh, oak tree for shade because that breezeway was only partially covered, and when the sun got to a certain height, they had to move or else they'd just sit there and sweat. When they decided to move and risk the suspensions, they were told that they were blocking access to the school as opposed to the oak tree, which was right in front of it. So they asked, and a, the assistant principal, I think it was, I believe it was a public forum, said something like, there's no written rule about it. You can sit anywhere you want. So they did. And the next day, of course, the nooses show up. Three nooses with the school colors intertwined in them were hanging from the trees. The principal of the school actually reacted the right way. He expelled the kids. And then the school board and the superintendent of schools turned around and decided that it was but a prank. I guess kind of like putting a swastika in a Jewish home. A prank. And they turned it around and only suspended these kids for three days, which is the same thing you get if you're black and cross the line on the sidewalk. Later on, actually a few months later, an older kid who was not in the high school, 21, 22-year-old young white man, threatened several black youngsters with a shotgun. Now, mind you, this was not your sporting weapon that you shoot skeet with or hunt rabbits with. This was a sawed-off 
pistol grip uh, slide case out to the side with six buckshot shells in it. This was a people-killing weapon and made for no other purpose. Well, when he pointed it at the black kids, one of them took it away from him and wouldn't give it back because he was going to shoot them with it. Well, no charges were filed against the white boy, even though that's clearly aggravated assault. Assault means putting someone in fear of imminent bodily harm, and aggravated means with a dangerous weapon. Keep that latter thing in mind. But the black kids were arrested for theft of the shotgun. Later on at a party at a sort of a public place called the Fair Barn, which is like a big bingo hall there, I guess, in Gina, there's not a heck of a lot to do. The students were having a party, and one of the black students was invited to the party, happens to be the, the young man that Jim Boren's going to represent, a fellow named Robert Bailey, went to the party at the invitation of one of his football playing buddies, I believe. And when he got there, he was jumped on from behind and cold cocked by a white kid. And then he was jumped on by a bunch of white students who broke a beer bottle over his head, among other things. No arrests were made. No charges were brought against these white kids. Later on, the young man who ended up being the white kid beat up later that you know about, he was actually seen on campus by the authorities with a shotgun on the high school grounds. That is an enhanced crime, becomes a felony, and is really serious. He was not charged with anything. Later on, the, the racial tensions in the high school reached really fever pitch. And on the day in question at the school, there was some sort of gathering, and there were a lot of racial taunts going around and a lot of people being called names. And one of the black kids came up behind the young white man and clocked him, knocked him out for about 10 seconds. Then he was surrounded by a bunch of people, and there are 34 different versions of what happened. But somebody kicked the white kid in the head. He ended up with two black eyes and a minor concussion and a cut by his ear. He went to the doctor, but he also managed to go to a party that night. Now, the black kids were all arrested. Um, they were charged originally with aggravated battery. Aggravated battery means with a dangerous weapon. There were no dangerous weapons used. The district attorney then upped the charge to attempted second-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder on the black kids only. When it went to trial and very shortly before the trial, he reduced the charges down to uh, second-degree battery. Second-degree battery means excruciating pain and or unconsciousness. And that's what the kid, young Michael Bell, was convicted of. The, the overcharging by district attorneys is fairly common. But in this case, that was so blatant and so wrong. Not that the black kids did right. On the other hand, if I was black and someone was calling me the N-word, I'm going to do my best to kill them, and I'm sorry. That's just me. I wouldn't put up with it. Nevertheless, they did wrong, and they should be punished. But so should the white kids or none of them at all. Get them into counseling. These are children. Get them back in school. And what is the problem with this, these kids fighting like this? You know what it is? We don't do anything about it at an early age in school. 
Southern Poverty Law Center, for example, puts out a program. I got a, one of their magazines right here called Teaching Tolerance. Preach it, preach it. What? I said <laughs> <laughs> Teaching Tolerance is given out free to, by Southern Poverty to tens of thousands of schools around this country. And what it does is it's a tried and true method of having children, black, white, Hispanic, blue, purple, whatever, Learn to get along at an early age, because you lose them at an early age, you've lost them. Now, I don't understand why the Caddo Parish School Board will not even look at this. And that's the biggest problem, it seems to me, that we face, is not just apathy among the white community. Because far too many of us, you know, go, tisk tisk, this is terrible, and sit on our dead butts and we don't do anything. And that's exactly the problem for a different reason in so many of these small towns. The black community, there is an apathy that I have seen for years where it is impossible, it seems to me, to get the community to rise up. And that's because you've been beaten down for generations by a system just exactly like this court system in Gina, where you have no chance in hell to get justice because you are outvoted and the judge is elected and the district attorney was not elected by you, and the cops are allowed to get away with harassing, particularly young black people, the young black men, all the time, and nothing is done. That's got to change. And that's what Gina is about. It's not just a selective prosecution. That's all over the state. It's not just a bad public defender system, which we have been dealing with reforming for 20 years, and finally this year in the legislature, sweeping statutory reform in the Louisiana legislature to fix the worst public defender system in the state. And the person most responsible for getting that done and without which it would not have been done is Lydia Jackson. Yeah. I told Lydia that I wasn't going to say anything good about her, but I lied. Well. Uh, when, when my friend Jim Boren jumped into the case, he and another lawyer from Baton Rouge named John DiGiulio, John's also fairly bright, he graduated third in his class from Harvard Law School, they jumped in, and of course that makes the DA very nervous. He probably graduated last in his class. And it horrifies the judge. Uh, so when Jim got in, he was told by the judge that he wouldn't be allowed to file any motions. Excuse me? Well... That's going to go up on appeal. And lots of other motions to remove the venue, remove the DA, because he went into an auditorium full of kids, looked directly at the black kids, and directly at them, and said, with a stroke of a pen, I can change your life forever. Now, we're tracking down whether that's an ethical violation, but it's certainly a moral violation. And it seems to me that clearly we have a duty to do something about Gina. We now have the political genius of the Third Circuit Court of Appeals who reversed the sentence on Michael Bell because he was only 16 at the time. You think his lawyer might have thought of that? This is a lawyer who's part of that wretched public defender system who at that trial allowed an all-white jury panel to be there from whom the jury was going to be selected. All white. Fifty people showed up. They were all white. An all-white jury was selected. He did not call one single witness for Michael Bell's defense. This is outrageous.
but that's going to change. In the meantime, now that we've got Michael Bell's case untracked, it's going to go right back to trial, but as a juvenile. And juveniles are not entitled to jury trials. And the other young men are going to continue to get prosecuted, and we had hoped against hope that if we could just get good lawyers in there and go after them, we could win this thing. Then, of course, it got political. And while there's not much that Reverend Sharpton says that I disagree with, I wish he hadn't come because it polarizes those rednecks down there like nothing you've ever seen, and I don't want that to involve the politics which always pervades our courts. I had a sense that somewhere along the line, the Court of Appeal or our state Supreme Court was going to do what needed to be done, which was shut this prosecution down. But now it's going to be a long, dragged-out fight. Motion practice, people are going to forget about it, and what we can't do is forget about it. Because this is going to happen again in Shreveport. It's going to happen with this stupid, sorry, that's my view, this stupid pants law that's simply going to allow the police to pick on black kids. They get to search them. They get to pat them down for weapons. And it's going to cause more disrespect for a police department than we can stand. In any case, whether you agree with me or not on that, the point... <laughs> The point is, is that we do need to do something in Gina, not only to celebrate this victory in the Court of Appeals on the Michael Bell case, but to give people to understand that it isn't just black folks mad. There are a lot of white people who are horrified, embarrassed, and like me, furious. We will not stand for this. And if you think that we're going to stand by in this church and a lot of others around here and watch our brothers and sisters be treated differently because of the color of their skin, you've got another thing coming. Here. Thank you. Pastor Oglesby for this wonderful and warm invitation. Have we not had a glorious time thus far tonight? With wonderful singing, with wonderful fellowship, with a united spirit, a spirit that says that uh, right shall uh, overcome that the things in this world that are wrong to include what's going on in Jenna. When I first met Pastor Oglesby, uh, our spirits immediately met. We met as sister and brother in the struggle to bring about what Dr. King called the beloved community. I felt a connection and it was immediate. Uh, perhaps this story will help you tonight understand the connection that she and I have and what I mean. In February 1965, in Marion, Alabama, a night mass meeting was held to encourage disenfranchised blacks to protest for the right to vote. Uh, during the march, state troopers, uh, uh, local law enforcement officials, along with vigilantes, acting in concert, attempted to break up the rally. The marches, the marches 
uh, stopped outside of what is called Zion United Methodist Church to pray. Leading the prayer was a young World War II veteran by the name of the Reverend James Dobines, my uncle. And while on his knees in prayer, a billy club, a nightstick, or whatever you want to call it, came crashing on his head, and blood gushed out like a fountain. It was a dubious sign of that which was to come later. Indeed, this was the beginning of a long night of senseless beatings and bloodshed. The street lights were shot out. People began to scatter for refuge against the inhumane, indiscriminate beatings. Women, children, the elderly were not immune from this barbarism. Shots were fired by an Alabama state trooper at another World War II veteran, 26-year-old Jimmy Lee Jackson, who came to the aid of his elderly grandparents, Mr. and Mrs. Cager Lee. Jimmy Lee Jackson was mortally wounded and died several days later at the Good Samaritan Hospital in nearby Selma. As a means of honoring Jimmy Lee Jackson's memory and his supreme sacrifice, and to continue the struggle to get the ballot for black people, it was decided that the matter should be taken to the steps of the state capitol in Montgomery. It was decided that the infamous, vicious, racist governor, George Corley Wallace, who took a stand at the schoolhouse door at the University of Alabama two years prior, needed to be addressed about these injustices. So in early March, a group led by John Lewis, Albert Turner, Hosea Williams, Bob Matz, left the Brown Chapel AME Church to cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge, where they arrived. And when they got there at the bridge, they were met by what has been historically referred to as a sea of blue. Alabama state troopers were all over the place. And they immediately told the group to disperse. And what followed were images that were caught on worldwide television. A melee, tear gas was released. Uh, riders on horseback, armed with billy clubs and other weapons, trampled and struck many of the marchers. The marchers later reconvened at the Brown Chapel Church. And then a call came immediately from Dr. King in Atlanta to Dr. Frederick Douglass uh, Reese and said to the people to keep the faith and that he would be in Selma in just a few days. Then they would lead the march from Selma to Montgomery. A call was called from across the nation and indeed the world. And answering the call was a young minister by the name of the Reverend James Reed, a minister, a Unitarian minister from Boston, Massachusetts. And while leaving the Silver Moon Cafe, Along with other ministers of the Unitarian faith, Reverend Reeb and his, his associates were attacked by an angry mob. Reverend James Reeb died for standing up against the injustices of his day. The news reached the White House, and then President Lyndon Baines Johnson eulogized Reeb before a nation and the world, calling him this good man. Shortly after that, President Johnson signed the Voters' Rights Act of 1965. So in a very real sense, we have a Joe Shine and a Lydia Jackson because of Jimmy Lee Jackson's stand in Marion in February.
a very real sense, uh, we have black elected officials in this city and across this nation uh, because of the stand of the Reverend James Reeb. Reverend Reeb died 42 years ago, but those efforts need to be studied, examined, and kept alive. And those lessons that were learned in Selma need to be transported here to Shreveport and then on down to Jenna. What, takes, what took place in Jenna, as my dear friend Brother Walker just declared and shared, is not an anomaly because there will always be threats to justice everywhere. And so in the spirit of the Reverend James Reed, we must go to Jenna. We must go to Jenna to speak to a demonic DA that we will and tell him and all who are involved that we will not sit idly by and allow our children to be treated like animals inhumanely without speaking up and speaking out. The lessons learned from Selma and from the life and the sacrifice of James Reeb are lessons that we ought to carry with us the rest of our lives and never allow one day to pass without remembering the supreme sacrifice that was made. Biblically, I turn my attention now uh, to that book of Exodus, that book of liberation, that book of freedom. When a gentleman guilty of second-degree homicide on the run, a fugitive, hiding out and pretending not to be a prince of Egypt, but pretending to be a sheep herder for his father-in-law, Jethro. But on a particular day, he saw something that was unusual. A bush was burning that was not consumed. And so it caught his attention, and he went a little closer. And as he got closer, there was a voice. He said it was the voice of God, the voice of Jehovah, the voice of the maker and creator of heaven and earth, who declared unto him a man who had a lisping, stammering tongue, who had a speech impediment, that I have chosen you to go to Egypt, to speak truth to power, to say to Pharaoh, these are mortal words, let my people go. Moses, like many of us, when called upon to do what seems to be an insurmountable task, will often resort to excuses. I can't do it. It's not convenient. It's not a good time. Whatever the case may be, it's not politically correct. Uh, but Moses, rather reluctantly, yet nonetheless heeded the voice of Yahweh, Jehovah, and made his way. That lesson, my brothers and sisters, is a lesson for us tonight, that God is uniquely calling each of us to speak up, because in our circles there are people who need to hear truth, who need to be confronted, who need to be challenged, who need to be moved out of their comfort zones, who need to be reminded that what takes place in Jenna is not something that will continue to be uh, boarded up and surrounded by a fence, but that kind of, of, of demonic attitude is everywhere, as Brother Walker again has told us. It then is up to us to act as a Moses, to act as a Harriet Tubman, to act as a James Reeb, to act as a Martin Luther King Jr., to act as a James R. Rutledge, to act as a person committed to the cause of freedom, justice, and equality. Each of us, we cannot hide behind our politicians. We cannot hide behind our denominations. We cannot hide behind uh, what is, again, politically correct. 
we must take a stand for that which is right. Because what takes place in one place today will be in our backyard on tomorrow. We are called. As Dr. King shared with the nation and the world on the 28th of August, 1963, in our nation's capital, he called on each person to, to dream what some would call an impossible dream, a dream that although uh, more than 40 years removed has not fully come to reality, but each of us must do all that we possibly can to bring this to fruition. We can make this world a better place if we are not committed to complacency if we're not committed to staying in our comfort zones. James Reed could have stayed in Boston. Moses could have stayed tending his father-in-law's sheep. Dr. King was a very uh, honored man with many degrees. He could have stayed in academia, but yet he was challenged to go to the South to make a difference. And that's the real call for us. Jenna is a wake-up call for every person in this room, every person in this nation, and particularly here in Louisiana where we can ill afford to have more bad publicity, uh, where we can ill afford to allow ourselves to be 49th and 50th and be the laughing stock to the nation. Yeah. We can ill afford to stand by and just let this happen. We must be committed to getting involved. We must be committed to the point of giving not just a little bit, but our very, very best. We cannot accept mediocrity. We cannot accept excuses. We must. I say again, we must give our very best. Moses left his father-in-law's sheep, went down to Egypt, stuck a finger in the face of the most powerful man on the face of the planet in that day, and indeed said, let my people go. It was not easy. God had to intervene. But I say again tonight, brothers and sisters, God is on the side of the righteous. God is indeed on the side of those who believe that right shall always, like a phoenix out of the ashes, rise. God is on the side of those who believe in justice and equality and the best that mankind can offer. He, accepts, he expects us tonight to be committed, brothers and sisters, to give our very best. Douglas Malick said, If you can't be a pine on the top of the hill, be a scrub in the valley. But be the best little scrub on the side of the reel. Be a bush if you can't be a tree. If you can't be a highway, just be a trail. If you can't be the sun, be a star. It's not by size that you win or fail, but be the best of whatever you are.